0: Hey, this is the first episode, so if you wanted to start at the beginning, you're at the right place. Somebody I didn't mention in the discussion and the preface here that I'm going to be doing in this episode is my son's English teacher, Gloria Kijkendahl. I didn't know I was going to need her help when I did this introduction, but I quickly found out when I started getting into Middle English. She was kind enough to get on the phone with me and try to help me through things like the great vowel shift and when to pronounce a silent E. Any mistakes are, of course, my own. A Month in the Country by J.L. Carr, with an introduction by Michael Holroyd, and read by me, Gary Smith. I wanted to read this book, which is a very short novel or novella, because it's simply one of my favorite books. I am handicapped by two things. I don't speak Latin, which comes up in a few passages, and I don't have an English accent, nor will I try to put one on throughout. There are also some places where a character's accent affects how a scene plays out, so I will try to approximate it for those moments, as well as using British pronunciations where I can and where appropriate. There is a commercial recording of this book that is far superior, I'm sure, but I don't think it's currently for sale, so all I can do is do my best. The book was not divided into chapters by Carr, and the recording will be segmented in a way that makes sense to me. All of the front matter will be in this section, so if you don't like that sort of thing, skip right on to the next. You won't hurt my feelings. Author's Biography James Lloyd Carr was born in 1912 and attended the village school at Carleton-Minneot in Yorkshire. A head teacher, publisher, and novelist, his books include... A Day in Summer, 1964, A Season in Sinji 1967, The Harpole Report, 1972, How steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the F.A. Cup, 1975, A Month in the Country, 1980, which won the Guardian Fiction Prize and was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, The Battle of Pollock's Crossing, 1985, also shortlisted for the Booker Prize, What Hetty Did, 1988, and Harpole and Foxborough General Publishers, 1992. He died in Northamptonshire in 1994. Michael Holroyd is the author of acclaimed biographies of Lytton Strachey, Bernard Shaw, and Augustus John. He has also written a memoir, Basil Street Blues. He lives in London with his wife, the writer Margaret Drabble. Introduction by Michael Holroyd. One morning, early in the 1970s, I received a letter together with an apparently blood-soaked card. My correspondent described himself as a family butcher from Kettering. His letter read, Although you may not have heard of the Ellerbeck Literary Award, you will be pleased to hear that you have won it. The prize is awarded at infrequent intervals, and you are only its third recipient. The circumstances are that Mr. Carr, who makes a living by writing, is one of my customers and pays me in part with unsold works known, I understand, as remainders. These I give to better customers in lieu of my customary picture calendars. Mrs. Ellerbeck, who goes to the WEA, Workers' Educational Association, class and is not adverse to a bit of literature, suggested some years ago that I award one of these copies as an encouragement to another member of the literary world, this to be known as the Ellerbeck Prize. We decide who it is to be from the most graphic and telling picture of the cultural world outside Kettering that we read during the month that Mr. Carr delivers his books and we settle with him. Sometimes it is a complete book that Mrs. Ellerbeck has been reading, and sometimes it is only a few lines. In your case, it is only a few lines, but I hope someday that this will encourage you to write a book about it. I came across these lines in some newspapers that Mrs. Timpson's saves us for outer wrappings. It describes you wrestling in the dark beside a wheelbarrow of sodden volumes and cleverly inserting your signature in a book a dissatisfied customer was attempting to return to you. As a tradesman, this has happened to me, and I can appreciate your courage and skill. I have removed the dust jacket for two reasons. As I store them in with my carcasses, they have a slight taint, and also I am told that without the jacket, it will be harder to sell. Mrs. Ellerbeck and myself intend to look for more of your writings whenever Mr. Timpsons brings his newspapers. Meanwhile, good luck to you. Yours truly, George Ellerbeck. My prize, a non-transferable meat token for one pound of best steak, was accompanied by a novel which turned out to be a satire on the teaching profession. The whole package was a rather baffling business, but after the initial shock, I assumed the air of Sherlock Holmes and set about solving the mystery. Three months earlier, I had been invited by the London Times to write a comprehensive manifesto celebrating international book year. Contrary to my intentions and against my better instincts, the article developed into a rich inventory of literary humiliations. If literature was thriving, as I bravely attempted to argue, then it was obviously doing so on its deathbed. It was for this work, I recognized, whose bleak comedy must have appealed to my correspondent, that I had been awarded my prize. The book I had been sent was J.L. Carr's The Harpole Report. I picked it up and began reading. Two points were soon clear to me. Although it was narrated as a series of official letters, the novel appeared to be partly autobiographical. What also became clear from its wry humorous style was that the author and my strange correspondent were one and the same person. Therefore, in my best Sherlock Holmes manner, I concluded that my benefactor was J.L. Carr. Elementary, my dear Watson. Readers of a month in the country will discover the Ellerbeck family under a slightly different guise. In the book's pages, Mrs. Ellerbeck presides over a splendid repertory of North-riding dishes and sees to it that the new arrival at Oxgodby, the war-damaged Tom Birkin, never goes hungry. Her big 14-year-old daughter, Kathy a very organizing girl with blue eyes and freckles, is soon coming to the village church where Tom Birkin is uncovering a large medieval wall painting and plays gramophone records to him. Sometimes she brings her wide-eyed younger brother, Edgar. Head of the family is the impeccable stationmaster and formidably mustached lay preacher at the chapel, George Ellerbeck. My father was a butcher, Mr. Birkin, he modestly reveals over Sunday lunch. A Month in the Country was published seven or eight years after I received my unexpected prize, and the book's appearance was the occasion of my only meeting with J.L. Carr. It was a fleeting encounter in unusually grand surroundings. His novel had been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and we came across each other both in our dinner jackets and clasping a glass of champagne before the dinner started. I wish we could have met in easier circumstances. His humorous face was contorted in mild agony, for he was, I judged, an intensely private man. We exchanged a few polite words, stood around awkwardly, and agreed that the Ellerbeck Prize, though not so interesting to bank managers, was a more singular honor than the Booker Prize. Then we were herded to our separate tables. I never saw him again. But I was amused to read in his last novel a self-published satire on the book business called Harpole and Fox Harrow, general publishers, that one of his characters, Mrs. Fazakerly, bookseller of Stotfield Magna, having developed the habit of stroking her books in winter, recommends as best for this kind of attention one of Mr. Holroyd's good, solid biographies. J.L. Carr's career was relentlessly unconventional. Though he was known as Jim and appears as James in one of his novels, he was actually Joseph Lloyd Carr, born in the north riding of Yorkshire in 1912. His father was a railway man and Methodist preacher like George Ellerbeck. Indeed, the Carr family appears to have had much in common with the Ellerbecks. But J.L. Carr released few details of his life to the public. On the first American edition of A Month in the Country, his biographical note simply reads, J.L. Carr Lives in England. Having twice failed his 11-plus examination, which would have qualified him for free grammar school entry, he was sent as a paying pupil to Castleford Secondary School, which the sculptor Henry Moore had attended, then went to the Dudley Teacher Training College, after which he taught in several schools in Birmingham. For one improbable year, he traveled to the United States and, on an exchange system, taught children on the Great Plains of South Dakota an episode that eventually led to his novel, The Battle of Pollock's Crossing, 1985, an eccentric offshoot of David Lodge's Changing Places. During the Second World War, he joined the Royal Air Force and served in Sierra Leone, using some of his experiences in his novel, A Season in Sinji*, 1967, where he opposes the madness of warfare with the intricate sanity of cricket, a game that, in the opinion of Bernard Shaw, had given the otherwise atheistic English nation a sense of eternity. After the war, Carr married the daughter of an Essex farmer. They had a son, and in 1951 moved to Kettering in Northamptonshire, where he became a legendary headmaster. His initiatives, which enrich his novel The Harpole Report, were famously unorthodox. He would ask the children to put their names and addresses in bottles, then collectively launch them into the fast-flowing river, or organize an arithmetic race in which contestants running along the course were obliged to stop at various blackboards, set out across the field, and solve equations. It was not beyond him to march his pupils along the tree-lined streets of Kettering, reciting A. E. Hausman's loveliest of trees, The Cherry Now, or hold school assembly near the railway line, or suddenly announce the school play in which everyone participated two days before its performance. He would take the children to local churches to hunt for historical clues and to a quarry so they might search for fossils. His worst punishment was to sit a pupil near a blackboard with his crime chalked on it and beneath the school puppet Bondi Bunda. Unsurprisingly, he was the bane of the local educational authority, although he was loved by the children and came to be respected by their parents. It was a shock for all of them when in 1967, at the age of 55, he suddenly retired to write novels. He had already published one novel, a contrapuntal revenge melodrama called A Day in Summer, 1964, somewhat reminiscent of Patrick Hamilton's retributive thrillers, and had saved 1,600 pounds to buy time for writing. But this was a difficult period. In 1968, his wife was diagnosed with lung cancer, and though this intermittently went into recession, it was to kill her 13 years later after which Carr added to the 1991 edition of A Month in the Country, the poignant epigraph by the Irish poet Herbert Trench. In his charming but not quite definitive 28-page pamphlet, The Life and Times of J.L. Carr, Byron Rogers writes that by 1969, Carr had only 200 pounds left, but rescued himself by printing and selling county maps, which are illumined with his teasing wit, arcane knowledge, and artistic talent. In his spare time, he had taken up landscape painting, sculpture, and the recording of church architecture in various mediums, ranging from pen and wash to acrylic, varnish, and occasionally finger on hardboard. Using the back room of his house in Kettering, as well as a garden shed, and employing a filing system consisting of shoeboxes, he created an unusual publishing empire based, he explained, entirely on logic. His publications measured five inches by three and a half, which enabled him to dispatch them in standard size envelopes at minimum postage. These mind-enlarging microtomelets, as the Times Literary Supplement called them, consisted of 16 tiny pages, which he claimed was just within the public's reading span. He began with a selection of poets, the very first being John Clare, one of whose descendants he had identified as his milkman at Kettering. To these miniature poetry books, he then added a bizarre collection of tiny biographical dictionaries of epitomists, usurpers, royal consorts, frontiersmen, and others. Readers came to love his wonderful mixture of fact and fantasy, his succinct and opinionated style. Nell Gwyn is a ravishing fruit-hearer, Henry VIII an axe-happy, ulcerated, impotent monster combined with his prolix titles such as Prelates, Parsons, Vergers, Wardens, Sidesmen and Preachers, Sunday School Teachers, Hermits, Ecclesiastical Flower Arrangers, Fifth Monarchy Men, and False Prophets. So successful was this publishing venture that when approaching 80, he decided to publish his own last two novels. He had taken to writing books for children and continued writing novels that were generally well-reviewed but never good sellers. The London Magazine called his fourth novel, The Football Fantasy, How Steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the FA Cup, 1975, simply the best football-based work of fiction. But like his other books, it did not flatter people or bow to contemporary fashion. Instead, with derisive of gaiety, it delivered in the words of polymath Arthur Benny Green, some murderous blows of the fatheads who populate professional football. In 1980, Carr published a masterpiece, A Month in the Country. In all his other novels, the quirkiness of his talent, like Tom Birkin's facial twitching and stammering, distract the reader from his storytelling with dangling footnotes and inconsequential parentheses. But in this novel, his various interests and passion seem magically harmonized, and we are held as the summer heat enfolds us, suspended between shadows from the past and premonitions of the future. It is a timeless book recreating a propitious season, another world, a place of healing. The narrative proceeds rather like Birkin's exploration of his medieval wall picture, inching patiently along, following a hand or face, aiming at something that looks right. I was engrossed in my work. It was tremendously exciting. I wasn't sure what I was uncovering. Initially, as he tells us in his foreword, Carr believed he was riding an easygoing idol along the lines of Thomas Hardy's Under the Greenwood Tree. There are superficial similarities. Both novels are rooted in English village life and have plots that revolve around the village church. Hardy mourns the passing of the old order marked by the supplanting of the choir by a new church organ. But Carr, combining ancient and modern, gives a hilarious welcome to the new chapel organ, while in the church he reclaims the past when Birkin finally reveals the 14th century painting. Birkin's affection for the hopelessly out-of-date stove refers amusingly to Hardy's novel. Both novelists compensate for a dark pessimism with their faith in the fundamental decency of the ordinary villagers. But Hardy, for once contriving a cheery ending, has his heroine, the flighty fancy day, reject the parson, and marry the man she loves. Carr weaves a more imaginative and ambiguous ending. I have sometimes wondered if it was a dream. As Tom Birkin teases the wall painting back from its years of darkness, he feels a sense of kinship with its creator. I had lived with a very great artist, my secret sharer of the long hours I'd labored in the half-light above the arch. It is a feeling he vividly communicates to his readers. They feel a similar affinity with the novelist. A Month in the Country is a novel of resurrection. The nameless medieval artist had died on the job, but his work, its color gradually spreading over the wall, is brought back to life. And Birkin, falling asleep on a tomb slab, is woken by the appearance of Alice Keach. I should have lifted an arm and taken her shoulder, turned her face and kissed her. It was that kind of day. He remembers long afterwards. And I did nothing and said nothing. It is a scene that recalls John Donne's early love for Anne Moore about which he wrote in The Ecstasy. And whilst our souls negotiate there, we like sepulchral statues lay. All day the same our postures were, and we said nothing all the day. A Month in the Country won the Guardian Prize, was reprinted many times, and in 1987 made into a film scripted by Simon Gray with Kenneth Branagh, Colin Firth, and Natasha Richardson in the leading roles. All this popularity and success made no noticeable difference to J.L. Carr's way of life. He was an outsider, a man of integrity, who wrote from his sense of privacy. Carr died in 1994, and his funeral service in the Kettering Parish Church was, in the words of Byron Rogers, like the passing of a spymaster. He had such disparate interests that there seemed to have been many jail cars, and since he compartmentalized his friendships, few of his friends knew each other. What I remember most about his funeral service was the fidgeting, as the mourners kept squinting sideways to speculate about their neighbors, Rogers wrote. Then, at the very last minute, there was a clatter of high heels, and a very young, very beautiful woman came in, dressed in fashionable black. She came alone and at the end was gone, just as abruptly, into the March afternoon. No one knew her or could find out who she was. An ex-pupil? Mistress? cricketer, Flower arranger? Sunday school teacher? But readers of A Month in the Country may feel that she had stepped out of its pages. Michael Holroyd